0: You've reached Sports Stories with Denny Lennon, the home of the CAC Dosen Award-nominated Best Video Podcast Series. Please leave a message.
1: Well, hello, Denny. Sean here. You can call me Sir Sean if you'd like. Uh, I want to let you know I've been watching with some mild interest this little uh, sports content program or whatever it is that you're doing there, but I want to give you some advice. There's a very competitive world out there, there's lots of other sports content entities out there that would do you wrong in a heartbeat. The question you have to ask yourself, what are you prepared to do? You have to be prepared to go all the way. If one of them pulls a knife, you have to pull a gun. If they send one of yours to the hospital, you send one of theirs to the morgue. That's the sports story's way. Alright, I've rambled enough. Thus endeth the lesson.
2: Ask any baseball fan when spring starts, and more than likely, their answer will be opening day. The official countdown to opening day starts after the last pitch of the World Series, and for over a century, excuses have been concocted to miss workers' school in order to celebrate America's pastime and be at the first game of your favorite baseball team. Major League Baseball's first officially recognized franchise, the Cincinnati Reds, were historically awarded the privilege of opening the openers. But the tradition that stood since 1876 was ripped away by Major League Baseball in 1990, either because they had such a mediocre opening day record that fell below the 500 mark, or maybe their nickname finally raised concerns among flag-loving citizens of the U.S. of A. American presidents have long taken advantage of this patriotic day. Twelve presidents have thrown out the first pitch. Beginning in 1910, when our 27th Commander-in-Chief, William Howard Taft, and please, no bathtub jokes, that's so inappropriate. In 1950, number 33 in your presidential lineup, Harry S. Truman threw out two baseballs at the same time, one with each arm. Not sure how that skill translates, but you know that crazy Harry S. always showing off his ambidextrous talents. As for some of the greatest ballplayers on opening day, how about the heater from Van Meter? Bob Feller, who in 1940 tossed the only no-hitter ever thrown on an opening day for the Cleveland Indians. By the way, we're still allowed to call them the Indians until we start calling them the Cleveland Baseball Club at a date to be determined. On opening day in 1974, despite facing an offseason filled with threats of his life from horribly bigoted people, the greatest Major League Baseball player of all time, Hamron Hank Aaron of the Atlanta Braves, on his very first swing, tied Babe Ruth atop the all-time home run list with number 714. Hank may be the GOAT, but if we're talking about the GOAT-AT, or the greatest opening day player of all time, that would be the big train, Walter Johnson of the Washington Senators, a dominant pitcher in the beginning of the 20th century. Johnson started 14 season openers and threw nine shutouts. Home openers are the only regular season game during the year in which the entire roster of the team, as well as coaches and clubhouse staff, are introduced to the crowd prior to the game. And so it was on a beautiful April day in Chavez Ravine in 1962 that the entire team and staff of a Major League ball club was introduced for the first time ever on the West Coast. A sellout crowd at Dodger Stadium cheered a team that would provide decades of memories for Los Angeles fans. The construction of Dodger Stadium, however, came at a price that the ball club and the city has yet to pay. Citizens' homes were taken and demolished. Families were displaced and their memories were destroyed forever. Baseball and opening day are emblematic of America. They represent hope, tradition, and heroic achievements. And sadly, at times, they represent less than admirable qualities like racism, exploitation, and injustice. But as Americans, we hope to right the wrongs and win the game. In this April, we all anticipate two of the best words in the English language, play ball. America! I'm a Venice, California-born, Los Angeles-based sports fan, one that has played, coached, announced, and promoted sports my whole life. My love affair with sports started in my own backyard and has led me to this podcast. Thanks to the support of the Amateur Athletic Union in East Bay, I'm excited to bring you Sports Stories with Denny Lennon. Hello, sports historians, and welcome to audio video podcast number 78 of Sports Stories with Denny Lennon. On this April 1st release of the podcast, we acknowledge that the same date is opening day for the 2021 MLB season. This month, we will continue to celebrate the nation's pastimes. This show will feature author Eric Nussbaum of the book Stealing Home about Los Angeles, the Dodgers, and the lives caught in between. We also welcome big game Jake Downey of JD Media, a longtime Dodger historian that joins the interview. Christine Jimbo is handling producing duties from the Sentinel-Adobe Corridor Buck Studio, while Marley Rice puts it together from Studio 51 in Venice. One what, what of the guys um, I found interesting, but let me first start with uh, Abrana Arichiga and her Abrana family.
3: That, yeah. So she is sort of the main character of the book and she is a woman who, she's no longer with us, but she was born in a town called Monte Escobedo in Mexico and she came to the United States as a teenager during the Mexican Revolution. Uh, While pregnant, she immigrated to a small town in Arizona called Morenci. That was a copper mining town and that's where she lived with her first husband. Uh, When he passed away she remarried to another guy from the same town in Mexico, Monte Escobedo, uh, named Manuel. And they eventually, after the copper industry collapsed at the end of World War I, moved to LA, and they moved to a little neighborhood called Palo Verde, which is not Palos Verdes, easy to confuse them. It's actually where Dodger Stadium is now, more or less. Um, And they built a little house and uh, they settled there. And that was kind of their home. It was not the richest neighborhood, Uh, There's their house. And but it was a place where you could buy land if you were Mexican American and that was
2: not the case in a lot of LA at the time. Right. And it was it was theirs. It was it was theirs. Um so you know, Chavez Ravine, what we what we call that now, actually encompassed um what was it, the Stone Quarry Hills and and the surrounding communities there? Yeah, so the, the like the phrase Chavez Ravine has been around for
3: a long because the Chavez there was an actual Chavez Ravine, although it's ironically not where like the stadium is, um, and there was, there's the Chavez Ravine Road that's been there since the 1800s. Mm-hmm. But the, like, the area you could call the Stone Quarry Hills, uh, those hills kind of encompassed five different ravines. Uh, one of them, Solano Canyon, we still see as Solano Canyon if you, you know, drive up the back way to a Dodger game. Yeah. Uh, uh so the, one of the things I talk about in the book is that there were three communities in what we now think of as Chavez Ravine, and they were Palo Verde, La Loma, and Bishop, and they were kind of three separate communities, each with their own character. And I make a point to to kind of remind readers that these, it wasn't just one place; it was it was multiple places, and right. people who lived there, you know, didn't identify themselves as being from Chavez Ravine necessarily.
2: mm Hmm. Quite true. Um. The other thing I found interesting um, was the convergence of when maybe, you know, the seeds were planted in your head to do this story. And that was when a guy named Fred Wilkinson uh, came to your school. You were a junior at Culver City High School and and he talked to you. And um, so that's that's a really cool kind of interesting story.
3: That's really cool. So it was Frank Wilkinson. He um, he was an old older guy at the time and towards the end of his life. And he had lived a fascinating and trying life to say the least so he came to our us history class my junior year with andrea McElroy, who was the teacher i actually just talked on the phone to her for the first time since that class wow uh, experience her name is andrea spiro now she's a professor in san francisco ah she's got to be proud oh I-, I hope so i sent yeah. her a book uh so That's she cool. So she brought him in to talk about the Red Scare and McCarthyism. He had been a housing official in LA, working for the housing authority, um, setting up public housing. And he was sort of the engine behind this project called Elysian Park Heights. And the project was going to evict, basically, those three neighborhoods that we had talked about and kind of replace them with this really ambitious public housing project with 3,600 units. Uh, But before it could get built, he was outed as a communist at a hearing, and it sent his life into a tailspin.
2: And also killed the kind of the whole public housing initiative in L.A. Was that the 1949 like urban planning? Uh, was that under yeah. the Truman administration or something along those
3: lines? Pass, passed a big bill called the National Housing Act, and that sort of sort of gave federal funding to different cities to build their own public housing. Uh, especially after the war, you saw a lot of people kind of moving into cities, and especially L.A. had a huge wartime growth. Um, and there was kind of a lot of debate still about like, what's the best way to house people? Is it through private home ownership? Is it through public housing? And obviously we know public housing didn't really win that battle.
2: What was the um, community like? I mean, um, you'd, you'd really draw it up well, as far as you know how that community acted in, in that area, um, how they kind of lived day to day and were almost like a subset of Los Angeles.
3: Yeah, they were kind of, I mean, in many ways, a normal community, a small town almost within l a you know it had its own culture, more or less. They had a church, they had stores they had you know everything else. people went to work downtown or in you know offices or in train yards or whatever it was uh just like anybody else, but they also had this experience of being a little bit isolated you know that they were kind of hard to get to they weren't a lot of ways in and out of the hills. It wasn't like now when you pull off the way into a dodger game, although Pretty easy to argue that Dodger Stadium is still very hard to get to from most of LA. Um, they
2: they couldn't use Vin
3: Scully Drive. No, they, they could not. So, so they 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 could use Bishop's Road, and uh, they they especially after the freeways were built, actually the 110, especially, they became more isolated because right. the freeway kind of cut off their neighborhood from downtown and from a lot of kind of East LA. Um, it was it was its own place. And it was also part of LA at the same time, if that makes sense. Yeah,
2: sure. Um there's there's these other intersecting um times in history that play into this. And one is the Mexican-American War and and towards, you know, the tail end of that, and this convergence of or this folklore that played yeah. out about baseball and Abner Doubleday and Santa Ana's leg. It's it's a beautiful yeah. story. I made you tell it on 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 the Friday show, but again, we may have some new people listening and and it's just kind of fun to hear that folklore.
3: Sure, so the folklore I talk about, and one of the big themes of the book is baseball. And obviously mm-hmm. but why LA was so desperate to get a baseball team and into the 50s and why baseball was so important. And so I wanted to talk about that in the context of Mexico and the context of LA. And one of the stories I came across, and this is when I was living in Mexico City, was that the first game of baseball played in Mexico was played with the prosthetic leg of General Santa Ana during the Mexican-American War. Uh, and the story goes that after the Americans beat him in a battle in this town of Jalapa, Abner Doubleday, who is supposedly the inventor of baseball, but not really, picked up his wooden leg that was left on the battlefield and said, oh, yeah, I can use this to play my new game I just invented. And he taught all these how to play baseball. Um, it's not true at all. But the fact that that story got repeated as myth for so long, and, I mean, like it's in old guidebooks about Mexico, <laughs> uh, is pretty. It's pretty telling of how Americans kind of thought of Mexico and thought of baseball.
2: Would it have been like a 38 ounce, 40 ounce bat? What are we looking at? The
3: regiment that won that battle, quote unquote,
2: uh, was the Illinois
3: Volunteers, I believe. And one of his prosthetics remains in the State Historical Museum in Springfield, Illinois. So you want to go see one of Santa Ana's wooden legs. Uh, Absolutely. I want to take a little batting (laughs) practice with it. I have not been, but I'd like to make the road trip one day.
2: Nice. Okay. Um, let's take a – one of our uh, listeners says – this is Cheryl uh, Huntington-Franco. says, I'm wondering if Eric has received any feedback on the book from the Dodge organization.
3: No. Hmm. <laughs> it's a oh. simple answer. They
2: yeah. have um, – they haven't – they didn't really cooperate that much. Uh, they weren't really
3: interested in the book. Um, I don't think they've really commented on it,
2: now. Um. I can get to the uh, – um, Dave Roberts' niece. I interviewed her recently. So if you, if you want to comment, she's in ninth grade. She yeah, could lay in. Have questions the other day. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, so uh, I had another part of this, that was interesting, and it was the life of how Al- Albert Spalding and Theosophy, the 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 this mm, cultish type religion, kind of played into all of this. Yeah.
3: So they were played into the invention of Abner Doubleday, right? The myth of Abner Doubleday as the inventor of baseball that came directly from uh, Albert Spalding, who we think of Spalding and sporting goods. Well, he's the Spalding, you know, whose name is on the sporting goods. He was a professional baseball player in the early days of the sport and then a manager, and he created this kind of sporting goods empire. And part of it was by marketing baseball itself. Like he said, I'm going to make myself rich selling baseball equipment by getting people to play baseball and believing baseball is this great game. And part of the reason we call it the national pastime now and think of it in this way is because of uh, excuse me, Albert Spalding's marketing skills. He was a genius marketer and he invented pretty much Abner Doubleday as the father of baseball because possibly Abner Doubleday was in this spiritual religion called theosophy that yeah. Spalding's wife was also in. So it really kind of just came down to that.
2: You know, Eric, uh, when I got to go real deep on my baseball knowledge, I bring in my guy from the Global Baseball League and JD Media. His name's Jake Downey. And it's a big game, Jake. And we call him Big Game Jake. How you doing, buddy?
1: How are you guys? I've been enjoying listening to your conversation. Good.
2: Um, we're going to let you join, I think. Please. Right,
1: nice of you. Thanks. <laughs>
2: Eric, I heard a good joke about Hector Espinino. I think it was Espino. Um,
3: oh, you really? You really do.
2: Yeah. I, yeah. The Mexicans, you want to you tell the joke? I'll give you the laugh. I, no, go ahead. I, I'm not sure if I can recall it. Really well, it was something to the effect that uh, Espino arrives at the pearly gates and um, St. Peter doesn't recognize him and asks God what he should do. And God says, don't be a coward. Pitch to him.
3: Yeah, Hector Espino uh, was the Mexican home-run king. Kind of, yeah. he's like Babe Ruth or Sarajaru Oh of Mexico, and he was this great player in the 60s and 70s especially, who kind of didn't want to play in the States. He, he had many opportunities to, and he almost certainly would have been a big star. But he, for whatever reason, it just didn't suit him. He, um, he went to one spring training, um, I think it was the Cardinals organization, and there was a kind of dispute over his contracts. At the time, uh, when a major league club bought a player, bought a player's contract from Mexico, the player didn't have to get paid out. It was sort of like players just sort of like a pawn, right? And he said, oh, wow. he demanded a, a large cut. He said, if I'm gonna go change countries and change things, you gotta pay me. And they didn't. And he said, well, I'm staying. And that was it, he stayed. And now if you see a player getting purchased from a Mexican league team, you know they get a negotiated percentage. but That's all because of
2: him.
1: Hmm. It also speaks to the value of the union. Uh, The baseball players union among the the four unions of the big sports just operates uh, with great power. Um, I've always been a fan of Marvin Miller and uh, the way that he created this union. And coming from the steelworkers, he uh, didn't really look with any romance upon baseball players as uh, playing a game, he said, hey, these are highly skilled men who do something that very few can, and they should be compensated accordingly. There was no romance about it. It was really just, this is what they're worth, and this is how underpaid they are. And he sought to uh, address uh, decades of inequity uh, for players. So uh, it's nice to see finally that Miller is in uh, or will go in the Hall of Fame, even if uh, he had to pass away, and his family had to say, uh, we don't need to show up or have this honor. Uh, it's still nice to see him honored. And it, uh, a particular outrage that he was uh, so inducted after Bowie Kuhn.
2: You know, Jake, you, you bring up the um, labor union part, and I just wanted to go back into like the 40s where uh, Wilkerson was you know, tagged as a communist or whatever, he, but he wasn't the only one. I mean, at the time, the United States was allied with Russia in in the war in Europe. And and it it just seemed odd to me that he was so ostracized for that. Or, or or am I getting it wrong when he was brought up on these charges?
1: Well, I can tell you from personal experience, I grew up next to a fellow who was an actor uh, in that time. And he lost his career uh, getting swept up in the Red Scare of Hollywood. And uh, even as a kid uh, growing up in Laurel Canyon in the uh, 60s and 70s, uh, there were two dads of kids the same age who one wouldn't be in the same room with the other because one talked and one didn't. So I, I found out, out about this in adulthood. But my parents were telling me everybody had to know where Murray and Paul were because there was going to be tension. And it all stemmed back to the Hollywood blacklist of the late 40s mm-hmm. and Joe McCarthy's hunt for communists in Hollywood. Um, uh, That may be slightly different than what you're talking about, but it was at the same time and it's the same Red Scare.
2: Yeah,
3: it was at the same time? It's the same thing, pretty much. I mean, it's all part of the bigger kind of picture of of the Red Scare and of the House and American Activities Committee. And what happened in LA was that, you know, in the kind of fervor of anti-communism and fear of communism, even when we're talking about, like the communism that they talked about, that these quote unquote communists were, they weren't like, you know, Marching off into the snowy valleys of Russia with rifles, they were um, just kind of pro- liberal, progressive people who kind of thought that was the best way to to make a better world. That was probably probably not that far off from like progressive politics in the states today that we might call democratic socialism. But yeah, I oh, go ahead. Uh, in the time, you know, the Communist Party was sort of the main organizing vehicle for that politics, and being in it. Um, could really cost you. It, and it ended up costing Frank Wilkinson and kind of real estate interests in LA were able to use that to really just destroy public housing as a, as a viable possibility.
1: Sorry, Jake. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, no, you know, in in uh, uh, probably about 15 years ago, I talked to a fellow named Lester Rodney. I don't know if you remember that name. He yeah. was the sports editor of the the Daily Worker, which was the Communist Party newspaper in America. And there was even some debate as to whether to have a sports section in the Daily Worker, but he was the first editor and he would cover baseball. And they looked at baseball as uh, a leisure pursuit for the working man. Um, And Rodney was an unabashed communist and covered Major League Baseball and was celebrated as one of the earliest advocates for Jackie, well, sorry, for uh, uh, Black players' inclusion in Major League Baseball. It turned out to be Jackie Robinson. But he was the one in the pages of The Daily Worker saying, uh, what is this great injustice in the land of the free and the home of the brave that not everybody can compete equally?
3: Yeah. One uh, of the people I talk about in the book is Paul Robeson, who was, you know, a famous entertainer. But he was also a great athlete in his day. He played baseball in college and football, all-American football player. And he coached Lou Gehrig in baseball at Columbia. I mean, he uh, yeah, but he uh, was along. You know, with Lester Rodney in the early forties, one of the leading advocates for breaking the color barrier, and I talk about this in the book. Later on, Jackie Robinson gets roped into testifying against him at the House on American Activities Committee, even though Robeson is one of the reasons that Jackie Robinson was able to even break the barrier. Right. And it's sort of the tragedy of America: you take two steps forward, one
1: step back. Yeah, and it's kind you, of you know the, the, oh the the pissing match between uh, Walter O'Malley and Branch Rickey had a lot to do with. Walter O'Malley's jealousy towards Ricky for getting more credit for elevating Robinson to the big leagues. I mean, yeah. it sounds like it was at the center of the dispute that that forced the the divorce of Ricky and O'Malley.
3: Yeah, I, I honestly don't get into it in the book, but it's really fascinating. And it's like two of the most, I mean, you could argue two of the, the two most important executives in baseball history, at least in the early kind of first half of the 20th century and they were with the same organization for a while, and it's not a shock that it didn't work, because they were both really, really self-important guys.
2: Can you follow uh, what happened to and eventually um, Eric? Because I know you did when you did your research. You worked with his his widow and some of his children on the interviews and so forth. But I know he was a young man in college, what UCLA and and so forth and so on. But then when he did get caught up in the Red Scare, what, what how did that play out for him in the long run?
3: So he was testifying in an eminent domain hearing about the land that would become Dodger Stadium, and he was asked to name his political affiliations, right? And that's a code word for, are you a communist? At the time, you weren't asked directly. It was all sort of indirect. And he listed his political affiliations and finally realized they were trying to get him to say communist party, and he refused to say it. And immediately, pretty much, he lost his job. His wife uh, was a public school teacher and an a- activist as well, and she also got fired her job at LA Unified, um, along with about a dozen other teachers, and that doesn't get talked about very much, but it happened. Um, he went to work in a de- department store, working the night shifts from a friendly mm. kind of department store owner as a security guard, uh, making a quarter an hour, you know, the family was pretty much living off of the kindness of fellow activists and Communist Party members. He eventually became a full-time anti-HUAC First Amendment activist, Frank did, and he even served time in, in federal prison um, for in his efforts to abolish the House and American Activities Committee Wow Wow what a tragic end for him yeah, I mean he ended up I mean he got out and he lived a long life and became celebrated uh, at least among people who share his politics and has had a historically large FBI file the FBI had been following him for like five decades and they had this insanely insanely huge, File that, the, that Frank sued for successfully in the 80s, too. It's pretty interesting.
1: I've, I've actually had other friends who requested their FBI file, and that's some uh, glorious reading once you get your hands on it.
3: Oh, I bet, yeah. Your own FBI? I can't even imagine.
1: Yeah, yeah. You, Well, the, my friend had worked in the State Department, was by no means an activist or a, a rabble-rouser, but he still had a fairly sizable file that, through filing a Freedom of Information Act, uh, he was able to finally get and it was about three inches thick, and uh, he and his son uh, had a good time sifting through it.
2: Uh, Eric, when I came across the story, it was LA Times.
0: And I
2: thought that was um, it fired me up when I saw that. I was like so excited to see this story. Um, but you know, families in Chavez Ravine only ask for a fair price for their property is what said on that homemade, um on that homemade sign. And that's what grabbed my attention. So, tell us a little bit more about Abrana and her family, and 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 how that came, you know, to an end. They they were like among the last to hold out.
3: Yeah. So they were among the last to hold out. There were some families that so they eventually were evicted forcibly from their home, and they had to sit and watch their house get bulldozed uh, by LA County Sheriff's deputies and whoever was you know contracted to do the do the bulldozing. So, but. Um, some of their neighbors didn't, you know, some of their neighbors ended up having Walter Romali given payouts and partly because they were kind of on separate legal paths. They, you know, filed different lawsuits at different times or different appeals at different times. Um, the Orecchica family had a dispute over the valuation of their home for eminent domain. So the city told them that their house, and really wasn't a house, it was two houses on three lots. It was worth $10,050. a judge made that ruling, and another uh, assessor had said it was worth $17,500, and this was in 1952, I think. So the difference between those two assessments of the House becomes sort of the basis for their legal battle, and they ultimately are just kind of saying, give us the $17,500 you told us you'd give. I mean, that's that's what they said. Maybe they wouldn't have even taken that, but you know, the city refused, and refused, and refused, and refused and finally forcibly evicted them and left that $10,000 in an escrow account as they continued to protest, camping out on the site of their old house (laughs) afterwards Um, until finally they left and kind of gradually took the money and really just kind of went on living in L.A. like everybody else, um, just having undergone this trauma.
2: Would O'Malley Uh, have written the check had he known? I don't know.
0: Thanks for watching and listening. Sports Stories with Denny Lennon is produced by Christine Jinbo and me, Marley Rice. Directed by Chris M. Alport with studio support from Alpha Command Unit and shot by bad boy Bobby McCall.
4: Original music courtesy of Lennon Music Production and original images courtesy of Sienna Lennon Photography. A big thank you to all of our contributors. Sports Stories with Denny Lennon is a production of Sports Stories, Inc. You can find us on audio platforms everywhere and the High School Narrative iOS app. You can also view Denny's shows on Roku, Apple TV, and Fire TV.
0: Make sure to press that subscribe button, give us a review, leave a comment. It will really help us grow the show.
4: Hey, you know what else would help us grow the show? Hustle on over to patreon.com slash Denny Lennon to get some never-before-seen videos, pictures, interviews, and more.
0: We are all over social media and constantly sending out clips on Facebook, conducting fun polls on Twitter, going live on Instagram, and more. To
4: find all our social media links, hustle on over to sportsstoriesdl.com.
0: SSDL proudly supports the My Stuffed Bags Foundation and the Heroes Movement.
4: The My Stuff Bags Foundation, with the help of thousands of people across the country, provides children in unfortunate situations with new belongings and new hope through its innovative My Stuff Bags program. Heroes Movement is a nonprofit that bridges the gap from therapy to getting strong again through small group workouts for any veteran of the United States Armed Forces for free. Links to how you can support and help these foundations can be found on our website. We wanna give a big thank you to our partners of the show.
0: So, as Coach Lennon would say, any questions, comments, or concerns, you can email me, Marley, at info at sportsstoriespodcast.com.
4: Sports Stories thanks all of our followers and listeners. And we we will will see you you next time. time. Hey, thanks, Marley. Thanks, Chris. Sports Stories with Denny Lennon. It'll keep a smile on
2: your
1: face forever. Kick it out, book.